It's another great day to talk about what happens inside the boardroom. Welcome to Board Vision, the official podcast of the NACD, the National Association of Corporate Directors. On this show, we share perspectives from leading corporate directors, discuss what makes boards effective, how they can help companies face challenges today and become future ready. In this episode, Rita Alderman, NACD Associate Director of ESG Content, discusses sustainability, climate risk oversight, the energy transition, COP28, and more with Karina Litvak, a director on the board of Turna. She is also the former founding chair of the Climate Governance Initiative, launched in collaboration with the World Economic Forum. What is the board's role in overseeing climate-related risk and opportunity? And how can directors enact change? But first, here's a word from our partner. Want to dive deeper into the boardroom hot topics referenced in NACD's annual report? Register today for Deloitte's Board Governance Webinars hosted by Deloitte's Center for Board Effectiveness. This quarterly series provides board members and executives from across industries and geographies with the opportunity to connect and hear insights on topics prevalent on many board agendas today. Learn more and register at Deloitte.com US slash board webinars. Hi, I'm Rita Alderman, the Associate Director of ESG Content at NACD, and I'm thrilled to be here with Karina Litvak, who has been a great mentor to many of us in the climate governance space. Karina, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Rita, for having me, and it's really a delight to be here. So when it comes to climate change, we know the clock is ticking. We also know that businesses cannot succeed in societies that fail. So companies do need to be a part of the solution. And investors, clients, the community at large will be watching to see how businesses do their part. Karina, you have been at the forefront of these climate governance issues for the last 10 years as a board member, and actually even longer than that, when you were dealing with the broader climate issues from the investment side of things. So let me start by asking you, who is Karina Lidvag? I know you have a passion for ESG issues, both personally and professionally. So please tell us a little bit about what drew you to ESG climate and sustainability issues more generally? Well, thank you for that question, Rita. Look, you're right. The last 10 years, which have been the period when I began to serve on listed company boards, because prior to that, I had been on a variety of boards that were not listed corporates. I have been thrust into this world, really in the front seat, because I joined the board of an oil and gas major. And you can't be in the oil and gas business and not confront the issue of climate change. And not only that, because I had behind me 25 years in the finance sector, focusing on sustainable finance and climate change being one of the key areas of focus for me, um, I thought, well, if anyone is going to be in a position to address this issue, it really ought to be me. But in actual fact, I found that I really lacked the skills. It's extremely complex. It's actually quite overwhelming. And so I cast around to try to find help and guidance and advice from fellow directors and discovered that we were sort of the blind leading the blind. And that's when I set to work, you know, creating the type of support system 
selfishly I felt I needed and that I was hoping other directors would reach for so that in our role as stewards of our companies, we could be much, much more effective and proactive in advocating for the adoption of a Paris aligned, that is to say 1.5 degree aligned climate transition strategy and not merely be advocates because that's not enough, but actually come with some very concrete ideas about how to translate aspiration into reality. And Karina, I know that in 2019, you co-founded the CGI under the auspices of the World Economic Forum. And just as a reminder, uh, the CGI stands for Climate Governance Initiative, and its mission is to mobilize boards around the world to accelerate the net zero transition. And as you know, Karina here at NACD, we're very proud to be the U.S. host chapter of the CGI. Can you share with us what successes has the initiative seen since its founding in, in 2019? And also, how do you measure success and, and what remains to be done? Yeah, well, I mean, I will start by saying that I think a major success was partnering with the NACD, because obviously what better um, organization to have as our partners in, in promoting you. this. So I would say, look, um, we are now in over 70 countries. Um, some of our chapters, we have uh, 30 chapters in 70 countries. So some of our chapters are regional hubs. We have a South African, a Southern African hub that covers 16 countries in Southern Africa, just by way of illustration. And then we have the United States, which is a single chapter, and that's more than anyone, you know, that's that's a big, big bite to, to digest as it is. And so I would say, to answer your question about what success is, success is, is that we are now in all continents. We are in North America, we have Canada, US. We're in South America, we have Mexico, Brazil, Chile. We're in Africa, we are in Egypt, as well as um, the 16 Southern and Eastern African countries. Uh, we're in Eastern and Western Europe. In fact, we started in Western Europe, Italy being the very first one. And we have good coverage in Asia Pacific. So several countries in Asia, as well as Australia, New Zealand. But we still have a lot, a lot of work to do. We are not in India. We are not in China. We are not in South Korea. We are not in Japan. We are actively working on getting our first Middle East, well, if you don't count Egypt, our first Gulf country, which is UAE. We're very hopeful we will launch. We didn't launch at COP, but we were very hopeful we will launch soon. Um, and that would be, we, they wouldn't be our first petrostate because I consider Canada and the US to be our first petrostates. Um, and of course, we also have a Scandinavian one, so we have Norway. So we have good participation from countries that understand the challenges of disengaging from the fossil fuel industry. But it's still going to be an enormous challenge to get that over the line in countries where, you know, sometimes 60, 70, 80% of fiscal takings depend on the oil and gas sector. And, you know, it's, that's that's difficult. It's very, very difficult to pull off. You know, we need to give these countries a viable future. So that those are the types of issues that we're thinking about. And so depending on the country where you operate, you have a very different set of challenges, even though climate change knows no borders, right? Um, but how we tackle, how we succeed really depends on where we're, where we are. 
it's an amazing group and, and we feel very privileged to be part of it. And as part of the CGI mission is also to disseminate and raise awareness around the eight climate governance principles that the WEF came up with. So I wanted to ask you, in your mind, do you think that there is one in particular, one of those eight principles that stands out to you as most important? And maybe if you can explain why. Oh, you're asking me to choose my favorite child. That's, that's a very <laughs> unfair question. Um, look, I... I think I'm going to answer this slightly randomly, and, and it's this. I often found when I raised this issue with uh, fellow directors that the most recalcitrant directors were the ones who said, you are asking me to do something that puts me in direct contravention of my fiduciary obligations because you are asking me to leave profitable business on the table. And I'm not going to do that because... I'll either get sued or I'll get sacked, but either way, this is not an outcome I'm particularly keen on. So I just want to carry on doing my job the way I've always done it, which is to maximize shareholder returns in the way that I know. And I've got the business judgment rule on my side. And in fact, what we ended up doing is commissioning a series of legal opinions. It started off with... Um, I think it was 27 countries. And then each year we put out an updated version of what we call our legal primer on directors' duties and disclosure obligations regarding climate governance, um, where we found that in jurisdiction after jurisdiction, be it common law or civil law, Sharia law, Ottoman law, you name it, we found that the existing set of obligations required companies to take into account the factors that were such as to pose a legitimate and material risk to the business. And when you add that kind of basic layout of what directors in every jurisdiction must do with the emerging or now well-emerged, widely accepted understanding which has been reiterated by over 95 central banks around the world, that climate change poses the single greatest risk to global systemic financial stability. You put those two things together, and there is the inescapable conclusion that it is the director's obligation, not an option, an obligation to consider climate change. Now, those principles together fall into what is principle one, which which is what I call the sort of the gateway principle, if you like, and the theory of the gateway drug, mm -hmm. right? Which is that once you've broken through that particular obstacle, that particular resistance, it's difficult for directors to say, sorry, not my job, because you will not be able to argue in five years or 10 years, uh-oh, I didn't know, no one said, nobody knew, that's simply not true. You could never argue that ever again. Everybody knows. Everybody knew. Everybody knows now. In fact, everybody knew years ago. And so as a director, you have to do this. As directors, we all have to take account of this. Now, is it simple? Certainly not. And the other principles then give you the tools for how to interpret this obligation into specific actions and deliverables. Yeah, absolutely. And so you just talked 
about the risks that exist if directors ignore climate issues affecting their companies, right? But what else would you say to board members who feel that climate risk is not within the scope of their oversight responsibilities? What other arguments would you provide? Well, I, I, you know, besides saying, have a look at this very reader-friendly primer that has a section on your country, most likely, uh, that is, you know, one to two pages long, very digestible, even for, you know, the most attention span challenged director up there. And I don't mean to be self-deprecating here. Um, there are more and more and more regulations around the world that are compelling companies to um, disclose what they are doing on climate change. And in some cases, such as the UK, they must disclose what their 1.5 degree aligned transition strategy is, right? The, the UK government has taken at that level, that step further. Now, if companies are compelled by law to do this, ergo, directors are compelled by law to comply with these rules. They must lead the company. They must shepherd the company through this process. And, you know, they don't need to be atmospheric scientists, but they do need to be thoughtful and use sound judgment and ask searching questions in the boardroom and satisfy themselves that management is giving us the serious consideration that it, that it deserves. Yep, well said. Now, let me talk a little bit more about your experience. I know you sat on the board of multiple companies. And can you tell us, um, in, in particular, what, you have, what, what have you done to get your boards more active on the ESG and climate oversight front? You know, the first thing to do, and I've had varying levels of luck on this one, right? So in one board, which I will not name, it was necessary to start with the basics and get, you know, a very, very high quality expert in to present to us on the basic science and macroeconomics of climate change. And what was supposed to be a one-hour briefing, because of the fascinated reaction of our members and the bombarding of questions, uh, lasted two and a half hours. So there was yeah. definitely, you know, an appetite, but there was definitely low, low awareness. And that was really a turning point. So some companies will need that. In other ones of my companies, there was already um, an, a, a, a very strong openness to the issue, I suspect because, you know, people more and more are hearing this from the media, from their adult kids, their teenage kids, their grandkids. So it's very hard to pretend that it's not happening, but they still lacked the skills for what to do about it. So you can already mm -hmm. to, to level two, which is, okay, I know this is important. Now, what are the details of why it's important? And then level three, so now what do I need to do about it? Um, and, you know, if I go straight to level three, and by the way, this level three is not principle three. This is, I'm just sort of giving you the, um, the steps up the ladder, if you like. Yes, um, yes. You know, you want to think in terms of what is the context in which my company is operating? What is, where do I sit today? You know, so you need to take stock of where the company is in terms of its carbon footprint, which is necessary but not sufficient. 
but also what its business model is and if it is compatible over the medium and long term with the world that will be weaning itself off of high carbon products and services. Because, um, you know, you take the example of my oil and gas company, which I left, I left seven months ago. Um, we were in an obsolescing business. We had to acknowledge that fact. It's not that it was going to shut up shop, you know, next week by any means. We all accept that, you know, oil and gas is going to be around for a while. We can argue very, shall we say, actively about just how long, but nevertheless, there will be oil and gas for a period of time. And that gives us a runway to organize an orderly transition. But organize an orderly transition, we must. Now, that was a discussion that we needed to focus on. So we needed to see where we were and then see where we needed to get to by 2050. And then a bit like when they built the Channel Tunnel, you know, and you're starting at both ends of the, uh, mm -hmm. in the French side and the British side, we have to somehow make these two pieces meet, right? Where are we, where are we going to be in 2050? And where are we now? And, and how, what are the interim steps to get us from A to Z? Right. And the milestones are really important in that journey. Absolutely right. And this is, of course, what is often missing from what companies will put out publicly. They'll put out an aspiration. You know, by 2050, we're going to be net zero. Mm -hmm. And then they say, you know, each year we're going to knock off three to five percent of our emissions. That that doesn't tell you the whole story. And it certainly doesn't tell you how you're going to get to zero in 2050. So it's very, very important that the board have some it can be they can be quite, you know, grueling sessions very most likely get some outside help. I mean, I know in my companies, we got outside help for this, expert help to work mm -hmm. out how this, what this was going to look like, how it was going to work, what the missing pieces of the puzzle were. And then we had to figure out what technologies we already have, which ones we have to develop or acquire, and how we're going to steer our way along this pathway. What I don't accept as a board member, and and I see this in too many companies, is they'll say, we will get there, but it'll depend on a whole bunch of unproven technologies that we don't yet know. Hmm. You can't that's not a plan. Right? No. That's that's not a plan. So, you know, if if that's the best you have as a company, you have a problem as a director. I feel that you are deficient in your obligation and you have to keep going back to the drawing board until you have a credible answer. So yeah, I think credible is key here. Absolutely. You know, because you know, your investors have to believe in you, but also your stakeholders, which by the way, include your own staff. And uh, I keep hearing this from, from colleagues in other companies that their younger staff, they're, they're under thirties are extremely impatient, extremely mm -hmm. demanding, and want to see evidence of commitment and evidence of progress. And, you know, I would say in, in my own companies, that was also very clearly the case. Um, so I, I do think that a lot of times we have the wind at our back in terms of the willingness of key stakeholders. It's, it's a bit of a mixed picture on the investor side ever since 
uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, because obviously it caused not only a spike in oil prices, but also yeah. uh, enormous um, rush to achieve energy security, which has mm-hmm. really muddled the argument tremendously, particularly for uh, the oil and gas industry. We were getting much clearer signals from our investors uh, before the war than after. And then it became incumbent on us to push back to investors and say, listen, we don't have the luxury of flip-flopping, even if you do, right? We we are a business where assets have a 30 or 40-year life on them. So when we make a commitment, we stick to it and we have to we have to stay the course. So, but this is the case whether you're dealing in in oil and gas or in automotive or chemicals or aluminum or steel or cement, all of these very difficult uh, industries, we we need to make a commitment and we need to keep progressing and we need to be serious and transparent. Absolutely. And coming back to the old company that you uh, you recently served on, I know that you were chairing the Sustainability and Scenarios Committee. What yeah. was that like? It was a very interesting committee because prior to my joining the board and therefore prior also to the current CEO having risen to the role of CEO. He had been in the company for 36 years, but he was promoted to CEO in 2014 when I joined. He rebadged that committee from strategy and sustainability, which I thought was already pretty darned enlightened, to sustainability and scenarios, which really put scenarios at the heart of how we drive sustainability. And I guess the strategy was implicit in there. And in any case, there's generally the view that the strategy is owned by the whole board rather than any one committee. And at least that was his held, strongly held view. And, and, and I don't disagree. So what that meant, and it took us a little bit of time, I have to say, it took us a little bit of time to get our head around this, where the exercise of scenario building uh, is a well-practiced one in commodities-driven companies because you have to. Um, and, in, and in my company, every three months, at a minimum, we would refresh our scenarios. And then if something major happens, such as you know a war breaking out, we would have an emergency session to look at how it might affect our scenarios, um, which of course, in this instance, it, it radically did. And so what that meant is that whereas traditionally we had looked at all of the commodities that you would expect, uh, various grades of oil, gas, coal, even though we were not a coal company, we looked at coal because, of course, it was intimately related to the demand for our products, Uh, various chemical components that we sold through our chemicals company, uh, currencies, interest rates, and, uh, and inflation. Now... What we then added was CO2. And up until that point, our scenarios were based on what we thought was most likely to happen, Mm -hmm. which I personally objected to because I thought the purpose of scenarios is also to stress test those extremes, those, those, you know, the black swan events. We really need to look at um, what you may think is unlikely to happen, but what, for example, the UNFCCC 
and the International Energy Agency, IEA, both say must happen, which is a 1.5 degree pathway. Have we stress tested against that scenario? And that, at first, we were not doing because we did not have the data. And after a few years, we did because we did get the data and we did, it did become a routine part of how we looked at the business. And I think that's fundamental. And I, I would, I would urge every board to do that. So, you know, you could look at what you think is likely to happen, your base case. And, and sadly today, we do not believe that the world is moving in line with a 1.5 degree scenario. And therefore we use a base case that unfortunately is incompatible with 1.5 degrees. But we nevertheless stress test everything against that 1.5 degree scenario in order to see to it that we can be resilient at the drop of a hat and run the business that way. And we also use the second best scenario, which is the one that is two degrees, as the basis for our planning, where prior to that we had used a less aggressive, if you like, scenario. Mm-hmm. And previously, um, the scenarios we were using were were considerably uh, less aggressive and so allowed for far more investment in oil and gas and indeed coal, even though we are not in that business. And I would speculate that many, many other oil and gas companies continue to use these less aggressive scenarios. And that is what justifies the investments that they undertake. So we as a company in any, I should say they, because I'm no longer there, um, have really tightened up the business tremendously to see to it that it is, first of all, absolutely aligned with two degrees, but also easily adaptable to 1.5 degrees the moment the warning signs emerge that the world is going to move in that direction. Yeah, that's that's really powerful. I also know that company that you served on committed to decarbonizing mobility and net zero emissions. Can you talk to us a little bit about the upsides of pivoting to a completely new business strategy like this? Sure. Well, the first thing to say by way of context is that the company committed to net zero emissions scopes one, two, and three. And okay. three. Okay. And That's three. important to mention. <laughs> Very important. I don't know of a single other oil major or indeed other oil company with the exception of Orsted, which ceased to be an oil company that has done that. Okay. Um, and therefore the only way that it can do it is to accept the inevitability of reducing production, right? And it has said so, and it is planning for exactly that kind of pathway. So, um, and, and just, just to complete that picture, so it'll be net zero scope three for the entire business by, uh, well, scopes one, two, and three by 2050. It'll be net zero scopes one and two for the upstream business by 2030. Again, I don't know of any other business that is pledging to do that. What you hear, what you heard at COP was they would be net zero scopes one and two by 2050. Any will be there in 2030. And then for the entirety of the business, scope one and two 2035. All right. So the refining, 
oh, excuse me, the electricity will be what scopes one, two, and three by 2040. So it has an electricity generation business that will be completely out of unabated thermal. There'll be a little bit of thermal left, but it'll be um, abated with CCS and most of it will be clean energy. So that's by way of context for the for the bulk of, you know, the core business. It is then growing a sustainable mobility business, which I have to say took off significantly after I left. So I'm not as comfortable, at least I don't have the inside knowledge that I used to, but it was already moving very heavily in that direction when I was there by investing significantly in biofuels. And I'm going to have to qualify that because of course, biofuels has some very significant concerns associated with them. But it Mm -hmm. announced back to 2014, because these things never happen overnight, that it was going to convert all of its petroleum refineries to biorefineries. And subsequently, it committed that it was going to phase out the use of palm oil by, I think it was 22, which it did, right, to the dismay of palm oil exporters. And has substituted with fuels that are kind to the environment and kind to the climate. And this is absolutely crucial because if you're going to produce biofuels by um, using fuels that damage the rainforest or that compete with food because you're using high quality arable land that would otherwise be used for food, you're not you're you're solving one problem and creating another. So the company bought a seed company and proceeded to invest in seed development, I should say not gen- genetically modified, but through hybridization, to develop oil seeds that could grow in degraded, salty, and polluted land. And so this meant that the company is now in partnership with a variety of agricultural cooperatives in seven or eight countries in North and Central Africa, producing um, oil seeds in on land that is otherwise not usable for human consumption or is completely denuded, completely deforested, completely dried out and saline. Um, and so it is growing Um, a variety of of these seeds. It is also using, to the extent it could possibly get its hands on it, but of course there is never enough supply, um, used cooking oil, used animal fats, any number of basically um, food and agriculture waste that can be used to be reprocessed into biofuels. I'm going to be shifting gears here, and um, I want to address uh, the political context. So over the uh, past year, we, we all witnessed a, a wave of anti-ESG sentiment. How seriously you think companies should take this movement? And how do you think they should, uh, should the company and the boards respond to it? And Ultimately, should they modify their ESG oversight practices and initiatives as a result of what we're seeing and hearing? I'm so glad you asked that question. So, obviously, the answer to your last question is absolutely not. You know, politics are fickle, and boards can't afford to be dictated to by the fickleness 
of politicians. So we have to run the business or oversee the business on the basis of what's right for the business. These risks are business risks. Full stop. There's no debating this. Um, and particularly if you operate in a business with very long business cycles like, you know, heavy industry, uh, you just don't have the luxury of, you know, flip-flopping. Um, you have to have a vision and you have to stick to it. Now, does it affect us? Yes, it does. Why? Because our investors who previously were speaking with increasing authority and also unity on these questions. And when I say unity, there were groups of investors who were coming together and giving us a coherent message about what they were expecting of us. They have fragmented because they themselves are being attacked. And that's not good for them. And it's not good for us uh, because it means that it's a bit like when you listen to the radio and you have a lot of static, right? You're, mm -hmm. you, you have to try to discern what the message is and it can be confusing. Um, and so you have to have really strong leadership on the board to, you know, to push on with what you think is right. And, and I'm pleased to say in my previous company, that is exactly what we did, but it, it is, it is disconcerting. And we did have, you know, investor presentations, uh, be they on strategy or the smaller, you know, one-on-one -on -one meetings on remuneration, where we would talk about the key performance indicators and how they were tied to the climate transition strategy. And suddenly they would change their tune. And we would have to say, well, sorry, we're not going to change the KPIs just because, you know, just because, right? The KPIs are aligned with the strategy. Yeah. But in the in the in the strategy meeting, we had to say, look, energy security is vital, especially in wartime. Um, affordability is vital, especially when there's a huge supply squeeze. But climate security is vital, and the problem has not gone away. And so we really have this trifecta that we must continue to advance. And you know, if we'd been having this conversation forty years ago we might be able to have put a pause for a couple of years while we wait for the war to pass, but we don't have luxury now. You know, it's not just about the KPIs, because even if KPIs are not modified, what we've seen companies do is that they are uh, toning down their communication. Yes. And it's the whole greenwashing effect, yep. right? Yep. I've definitely seen that. Um, I don't like it. Um, it's unfortunate. Uh, I much prefer that we have the courage of our convictions. Um, I think, you know, as long as the substance does not change, I am prepared to live with a small degree of it. But where I draw the line is when it starts to cut into the substance of what we do. Because I think... One of the, you know, the great beauty of being transparent and accountable is that it forces you to constantly be ambitious. And if you engage in greenhushing, you create space to become lazy. So greenhushing can be dangerous. 
So a little bit of green hushing while we wait for the storm to pass, okay. But absolutely, the objectives have to be there. And we have to find a way to to be true to what we said we would do, which is why I think the transition pathway um, initiative in, in the UK is so important. I mean, certainly the UK, even though it's no longer as relevant as it used to be, is trying to achieve relevance on this particular issue on a global scale. They're trying to make this a model that other countries will emulate. And in this respect, I think the UK is virtuous. We, you know, being forced by the regulator to be transparent mm -hmm. about our 1.5 degree aligned transition strategy is a very, very healthy discipline. Yeah, I think that accountability is paramount in it. Mm -hmm. So we cannot finish this conversation, Karina, without talking about COP28. <laughs> so yeah. last week in Dubai, a landmark agreement was approved and for the first time ever there was a call for a global transition away from fossil fuels what's your thinking about that some people thought it was not ambitious enough some people were happy where we landed and also importantly how do you think this may impact the role of a board director in the in the next few years well i'm going to ask, answer the last one first because i saw a very um, very real one, which is that, you know, some of the agreements that were reached around methane and flaring, for example, which are very, very specific to the oil and gas industry, that gave me what I needed to go into one of my boards and say, we have to do this. It's been agreed at COP. We don't have a choice. Okay. It was that simple. It was, yeah. It was, it was very simple. It happened to be something that any had long ago pledged to do. Uh, but for smaller companies that are not there yet, this was just what I was looking for. But on the larger question of the transitioning away from fossil fuels, this is how I see it. It got a, it got a lot of criticism for not going far enough. And that criticism is justified because the scale of the challenge that still awaits us is enormous. And this really only starts to take a bite out of it. However, given the very low expectations we went into this COP with. And given what I personally know it's like to move within the oil and gas bubble, and therefore given that the very people who live within this oil and gas bubble were the ones who were running COP, this result was nothing short of a miracle. And I, I don't normally lavish praise on Sultan al-Jaber easily, but is having persuaded Saudi Arabia to back this is a small miracle, right? So I think, I think it really is a significant step. It's riddled with loopholes. There is the possibility that people will, you know, get away with not doing even what is contained in it because of those loopholes. And therefore, it behooves us, particularly in the boardroom, but also policymakers at national level to introduce enabling legislation in their countries and regulations and so forth to see to it that the spirit of that agreement is advanced, right? Even though there will be people who will try to punch holes through it. So yeah, it was a very, I mean, to have the words transition away from fossil fuels, five magic words, that was a big deal. 
Yeah, I agree. So, Karina, let me be a bit controversial here. Are companies really helping address the climate crisis or are they making it worse? Do you know, I'm going to answer it this way. I think there's a big mass in the middle who are not doing enough to make a dent, right? Um, and unfortunately, doing nothing makes the problem worse. So yes. And I don't think it's because they're malign. Um, I just think it's because this is just a very, very difficult thing to do. And companies find it difficult. And they don't know where to begin. So there's that block. Yeah. Then you have the block of really enlightened leaders who are doing a great job and trying to pull everyone with them. And they deserve immense um, respect and, and gratitude for what they're doing because they're doing God's work. And then there are those who I think are really contributing to making the situation worse. And why do I say that? Because there are companies there who are spinning falsely reassuring tales about what they are doing and how we can get through this without doing the hard work. And that is extremely dangerous because it lulls people into a false sense of security. And we waste precious time when that happens. Um, we also waste precious capital on technologies that are not optimal when we really need to be directing, you know, scarce capital to their highest and best use. So um, first and foremost, we have to accept, and this was this was at the heart of the debate of this COP, as, as anyone who followed the COP will have seen, and there were some sparks that flew over this, you know, do we or do we not need to wean ourselves off fossil fuels? The unambiguous answer is yes. And there are still people who believe that the answer is nah, not necessarily if we do this and if we do that and if we use carbon capture and storage and if we use direct air capture and all of these, you know, fancy technologies. Look, those technologies have a place. We need them. There is no question, right? We cannot continue to produce cement and glass and steel and, and uh, there are any number of chemicals and, and aviation, right, without carbon capture and storage. But it is a stopgap measure. It is not the solution that is going to enable the prolonged existence or in much less growth of the fossil fuel industry. And this is the fallacy that is promoted. When you hear the phrase, it's not the oil we have to cut, it's the emissions, be suspicious. Because yeah. that is the that is the disingenuous narrative that is creating this false sense of security. And that is dangerous. So companies that engage in this are pulling us in the opposite direction of progress. And we simply can't afford that. We need these companies who have fantastic technologies, fantastically skilled people, uh, deep pockets, um, to all pull together 
in developing the technologies that will get us over this hump. But it does come with the acceptance. It's a bit like, you know, when you recognize you're an alcoholic, you've got to, you've got to recognize where the problem lies, mm-hmm. right? You pretend that it's not there and then we can fix it. Yeah. Thank you for being so candid, Karina. Well, thank you, Karina. I always love talking to you. I mean, your passion for the topic is contagious and your experience unmatched. So lovely to have you. Thank you, Rita. It's always a pleasure to work with you. And uh, thank you for for having me um, participate in this very interesting discussion. That concludes this episode of Board Vision. We hope you enjoyed listening. Please subscribe and join us next time. Until then, visit nacdonline.org to stay informed about the latest resources NACD has to offer, such as memberships, certification, national or chapter events, and our content, including reports, articles, and directorship magazine. That's nacdonline.org. Thank you for listening.